Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I certainly believe that hypnosis is a genuine thing that can happen. I don't personally believe that I am susceptible to hypnosis. I'd be very surprised if someone could hypnotise me. Uh, And I do think I could be hypnotised. I was already hypnotised once. And I do know that I'm extremely suggestionable. So that would make me very, very hypnotisable. I think I can be. I think I'm a bit difficult to hypnotize because maybe I'm a bit stubborn and I like to be aware of what's around me. I don't like to be, I don't like to be controlled. Uh, so I think I'm kind of naturally resistant to it, but I, I think it's possible. Now there's a few things you need to know before we ask people to come up the stairs onto the stage and play. Because once you step up those stairs, you're going to be stepping into the world of the imagination, your imagination. Because inside your imagination, I just help you as a hypnotist to experience some interesting states. So you might find yourself at the end of the show waking up wondering what the hell you've been doing. But that's okay, we're videoing it up there. so we We're at an event called Pint of, of Science in Clapham, London. It's a regular night that travels all over the world to bring the latest in scientific discovery to life. The audience is mainly scientists or people with a strong interest in the subject. Tonight's theme is the unconscious. Neurologists and scientists have been on stage talking about how our subconscious can change the way we perceive reality. The big climax of the night will be when a hypnotist will try to hypnotise members of the audience. When you come up on the stage, um, come up with an open mind. This is not a battle of my will against yours. This is just a case of helping you to play, as I said at the beginning of the show. That's about all there is to it, really. You will not be taking your clothes off. The hypnotist called around 15 people up to the stage. Some were sent off for not being susceptible enough, but by the end, a cohort of around 10 science fans went from sunning themselves on a beach to performing in a band at Wembley, including some of the people you heard from at the beginning. So what is our unconscious and how did we discover it? I want to go back and see the role mind-altering techniques have played in both the sciences and the arts. I'm Neil Denny and this is Converging Cultures. In the 19th century, pretty much anyone could call themselves an expert. It's said that doctors' ignorance and irresponsibility made them as likely to kill as they were to cure their patients. But it was these madcap experiments that led to the medical breakthroughs we rely on today. My name is Will Harrop Griffiths. I'm a consultant anaesthetist from London and I'm a council member of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. That's the Royal College that represents all the anaesthetists in the United Kingdom. One of the uh, uh, 
aphorisms amongst the anaesthetic community is that modern medicine depends entirely upon three A's. Antibiotics, anaesthesia, and adhesive tape. I'm not going to say which of the three is the most important. Some people would argue adhesive tape. I would obviously argue anaesthesia. Anaesthesia is a word that was coined by an American called Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he coined it not long after the first successful public demonstration of general anaesthesia, uh, which was in Boston in 1846. And it's derived from Greek words, and it literally means without sensation. So it expressed the ability of anesthesia to allow a patient to undergo surgery without pain, because before anesthesia, and, and you can say therefore before 1846, surgery meant pain. You would have your leg amputated with little more than some alcohol, uh, some opium, if you were particularly lucky, and some strong men holding you down while a piece of wood was shoved in your mouth. So before anesthesia, surgery meant pain afterwards we were able to do it without feeling, anesthesia, and without pain. I think people have, have lots of different ideas of where, where you go when you're anesthetized. Uh, we certainly know that when you're asleep in a normal way, your brain is still very active, and people will say that that's why you have dreams, particularly during REM sleep, you can have these bizarre dreams. Now, people don't actually dream during general anesthesia. The depth of sleep looks like it's greater. Now, a lot of people do dream as they go off to sleep and as they awake from general anesthesia. So very light planes of general anesthesia do provide you with the sleep pattern which can create dreams. I can't say where the soul go, where the human being goes, where your brain goes, where your sentience goes during general anesthesia, but I can tell you that brain is just damp and quiet down. It's Your brain's put on standby, basically, and we reboot it when we wake you up. So how did we discover the unconscious? Hello, Neil. Hi there. What's been on your mind this week? Well, to be honest, this podcast is doing my head in a bit. The producers keep wanting me to do all these stupid things, and it's really getting on my nerves now. And why do you think that is? Well, I only did this because it seemed like an interesting story. But it's getting a bit complicated. Like, we all know about Freud, you especially, and his theories around our inner desires and why we really do things. You know how it's our subconscious that drives what we do most of the time. And I know most of that's been discredited or thrown out of the window. Things like how we all want to kill our dads or sleep with our mothers or vice versa. And how everything looks like a penis. But Freud was onto something. There is a part of the brain that we're not always aware of, and it pops up in writing too. It's like all these scientists, thinkers and writers at the time were trying to do the same thing. They wanted to explore the part of our minds that stops us being rational creatures. The part that makes us, well, human. Um, Neil, I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop you there. We run out of time for the week. But I, I want you to think about that for your session next week. OK. So... I'm Daniel Pick, and I teach at Birkbeck in the history department here. I'm also a psychoanalyst. Uh, I also write about the history of psychoanalysis and the history of the other psi professions, psychiatry and psychology and so on. 
Well, I, if we're going to ask the question, what is psychoanalysis, I'd begin with Freud's own definition when he was asked, what, what is this practice? And he said, well, it can be thought about in three different ways. It's a theory of the mind, it's a method of investigation, and it's a form of therapy. There were theories of the unconscious before Freud, and people have written about the nature of those theories in Romanticism, and in, uh, in philosophy and various forms of philosophy and science in the 19th century, the recognition that there were aspects of mind uh, of which we were unaware. So Freud inherits uh, a, a set of ideas that are a kind of in circulation in Vienna and elsewhere in Europe in the later part of the 19th century, but he has a very particular take on the unconscious. He's interested in how we actively seek to rid ourselves, to get rid of thoughts and feelings that we find painful or sometimes unbearable. If you are, you know, let's say a Victorian gentleman who believes he knows his own mind, uh, this notion of being sort of a stranger to yourself is disturbing. Well, I think in Freud, I mean, there's plenty of darkness in Freud and attention to human destructiveness. But I think there's also, I mean, an enduring interest in the creativity of mind and this ferment of mind. And you see that already in the interpretation of dreams. I mean, both in what he's saying about minds that can create these kind of fantastical structures of dreams. And we could also just see affinities between the endeavour of psychoanalysis and the kind of exploration of streams, stream of consciousness or hidden features of mind, everyday life, psychopathology, uh, dreams in many of the great works of, of modernism. Um, so it's part of the zeitgeist, really, of the late 19th century, which is challenging you know, what has seemed to be untenable orthodoxies about mind and also about groups. There's much interest in the irrational and... Um, uh, destructive behaviour of, of groups and crowds in the 1880s and 1890s that, that is also a challenge to the idea of reason. We're all, in a way, strangers to ourselves, Freud will say, and he's in the company there of, of many, other, uh, many other thinkers and creative writers, including in popular culture in the late 19th century, storytellers like Jekyll and Hyde. As people were struggling with the sense of self, the idea that people are emotional and not always objective, reasonable creatures was taking hold and beginning to crop up outside of the science world. My name is Roger Luckhurst. I work at Birkbeck College, uh, University of London, where I teach literature and cultural history. Well, Jekyll and Hyde is an, a, a very well-known story, and everyone knows that story, but actually the way that it's told in the book is totally different. It's told backwards. So I think everyone knows that Jekyll is Mr Hyde, but if you were a Victorian reader in 1885, that's the last thing you discover. So it's a story that's kind of told backwards through a whole series of men who are very worried about their friend, the eminent Dr Jekyll, who seems to have got entangled in some kind of mysterious way with this working-class ruffian called Mr Hyde. And it's only at the very end of the story that you learn that Dr Jekyll has been experimenting with a particular kind of drug that splits his personality into uh, purely evil and his original self, which is a kind of mix of good and evil. I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. I say two because the state of my own knowledge does not pass beyond that point. Others will follow. Others will outstrip me on the same lines. 
and I hazard the guess that man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous and independent denizens. I, for my part, from the nature of my life, advanced infallibly in one direction, and in one direction only. It was on the moral side, and in my own person, that I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I think the brilliant thing about Jekyll and Hyde is that you can read it in at least always two ways. Uh, and that's certainly how it was taken when it was first published and became this instant sensation. So you can read it as a very moral tale, a very conservative tale, actually, about um, staying within your um, moral uh, restraints so that you, as soon as you start to indulge yourself, you lose control. So therefore, the message of this story is that you must restrain yourself, as all good Victorians were told to do. But at the same time, and at exactly the same moment that he's writing... Uh, one of his sort of friends, associates, the psychologist Frederick Myers, published a, a short essay called The Multiplex Personality. And that's the first kind of idea, really, of multiple personality that we get in English culture. And he was someone who read Jekyll and Hyde and immediately wrote Stevenson, actually a 20-page long letter, uh, saying this is clearly a psychological case study that is also a literary masterpiece. Here are the following details you've got slightly wrong, which you need to correct, and uh, I'll get back to you in a few weeks to make sure you've corrected those. So he was someone who was picked up immediately by psychologists as, as dealing with this really new kind of states of mind. So it's both a conservative story and also right on the cutting edge of psychology and science as well. 
Well, I think Stevenson was someone who was very interested in uh, the psychology of uh, the self, of mind. Allegedly, he said that he had the first inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde from a dream, and he was very interested in fever states and dream states because he'd been ill since uh, childhood and had suffered these kind of dissociated states that he was very interested in exploring. Uh, but he was quite resistant to psychologists who immediately jumped on him and said, of course, you know, you know all of these case histories and you know this background. And he was saying, well, really, it's... Um, I'm interested in the moral divide of good of good and evil, and that's partly from my upbringing, uh, from Calvinism, from his childhood in in Edinburgh. Uh, he was someone who was interested in doubling and splits all the way through his life. One of the key inspirations for Jekyll and Hyde was a story of uh, Deacon Brodie, who lived a very respectable life in Edinburgh, uh, but at night was uh, as a, was addicted to gambling and and uh, all kinds of immorality and burglary and robbery and so on. And he even lived it himself to some extent. Very, very strict parents, uh, very religious parents. Uh, and when he was a student at Edinburgh, he spent most of his evenings in the lower part of town, uh, down in the dens, uh, drinking and uh, whoring away, uh, and then returning to a respectable life at dawn, as it were. There is something about um, Jekyll and Hyde which seems to speak immediately to the era uh, I mean, it was an instant success. Uh, it was supposed to be a Christmas story, but it being Stevenson, he was slightly late. Uh, and it came out in January of 1886. Uh, but it was an instant success and became a global success, actually. So it's huge in America, too. So it's clearly speaking to uh, a population looking for a kind of way of expressing a, a new myth, a modern myth, to express something about the self. And that does seem to be what people were uh, responding to, whether they were religious and conservative, so you need to try and constrain yourself and, and, and restrain your indulgences. We're very worried about modern, young generation indulging themselves in these city spaces where they stay up till at least eight o'clock at night. Uh, they're reading at least two newspapers and, and, and travelling at over 10 miles an hour. On the other hand, I think, you can see also that people are saying yes, this is exactly the kind of doubling that I'm experiencing uh, and I need this kind of language of, of I am a Jekyll and Hyde personality in order to articulate something about our new sense of self. So I think it is appealing to a kind of psychology. I mean, bear in mind, this is just about 10 years before Freud begins to think about the unconscious as something which has meaning. I mean, to a Victorian, the idea of the unconscious is literally that, non-consciousness. So therefore, it's, it's nothing, it's dead, it's, there's nothing there. Whereas Freud is beginning to say, it's actually the most important part of your mind. The idea that people aren't always in control of their behaviour was being explored and exploited by everyone. As medicine was working on ways to switch us off, more unorthodox practices were tapping into our subconscious. I'm Mike Jay and I'm a writer and a historian and a curator. I've written a lot about the mind sciences in the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, there were all kinds of anxieties which you can see in different ways about people's minds and how they might be manipulated, often without 
knowing about it. Uh, there were, for example, sensational court cases in which people who were accused of murder claimed in their defence that they'd been asleep and hadn't been conscious of the act. So this became a kind of disputed territory that was very fertile for fiction and mesmerism or hypnosis as it was often known by that point was also something on which lots of um, fiction turned and which people were very fascinated about. Nobody quite understood what was possible and what wasn't. Mesmerism was the term that was adopted from Anton Mesmer, who was uh, a um, doctor who created a sensation in late 18th century Paris by um, healing people with an invisible fluid and technique that he called animal magnetism. He would just make passes over people's bodies, usually not even touching them at all, and people would then um, go into convulsions, have fits, and pass out, and often be cured of blindness, all kinds of incredibly dramatic miracle cures. We're familiar with things that uh, work in theory but don't work in practice. Mesmerism was the other way round. Nobody understood how it worked. Franz Anton Mesmer's theory of animal magnetism was disproved you know, by the French Academy of Sciences, but there was no doubt that a mesmerist could have an extraordinary powerful effect on their subject. There were some doctors like John Elliotson at University College Hospital who were great partisans of it and did extremely um, dramatic public displays of it where he had um, uh, subjects who he'd mesmerise and uh, they'd perform extraordinary feats, you know, go rigid like boards, for example, or turn out to know things they couldn't possibly know. People like Charles Dick who was a friend of Elliotson's, came along uh, to these public displays and wrote about them. So it became, by the sort of 1840s, um, a very sensational and uh, mysterious and quite sort of salacious topic. Trilby by Georges de Maurier was one of the huge bestsellers of the late 19th century, published in 1895, but set a bit earlier in the 1850s in the sort of bohemian um, Paris and Trilby is uh, a girl, sort of young artistic girl who sort of works in bars in this very bohemian world and then gets um, picked up by this mysterious and uh, very sinister and clearly Jewish mesmerist called Svengali. And he mesmerizes her and teaches her to sing and she sings beautifully and she becomes a singing sensation at bigger and bigger performances but the secret is that she can only sing when she's got Svengali there directing her uh, when he's not there she's tone deaf and she's never been able to sing and uh, so there's a big melodramatic climax when she gives her biggest performance ever in London and Svengali dies of a heart attack backstage and she's just left standing on stage with no memory that she'd ever been a singer. So what uh, Trilby sort of tests is the limits of how far one person can control another with sort of willpower or hypnosis. And this is something that was also being tested in famous court cases at the time. There was one woman called Gabrielle Bompard in Paris in 1889 who... Uh, was tried with her male accomplice for the uh, murder of somebody she'd lured to her apartment. Her defence was that she'd been hypnotised by her accomplice and she had no idea she was mentally absent at the time of the act. 
She didn't get away with it, but unlike um, her accomplice, she didn't receive the death penalty. And in fact, she uh, served a bit of time and then came out and then uh, took to uh, performing a stage hypnotism show in which she recreated her famous crime. So this was an area in which the lines between fact and fiction and uh, what was possible and what wasn't were uh, satisfyingly and fruitfully blurred. As with most stories, Trilby spoke to the culture of the time including some of society's irrational fears. Svengali is clearly Jewish. He's also a very sinister character. He's a cultural outsider. He's come from somewhere else. He's very manipulative. So this is an archetype that um, was sort of resonated, I think, in European culture in the 1890s, particularly in France, where the story is set. The idea that um, sort of society and politics more broadly is being manipulated by sinister Jewish characters in ways that we're all being played in ways that we're not aware of. So I guess that's the resonance behind Trilby there. We know how Freud's perceived nowadays, but what did people think at the time? Uh, my name is Zach Samlin, and I'm an English professor at the University of Chicago, where I focus mostly on 19th century literature and culture. I mean, the way I tend to think about these things is that, as Freud says, the, the, the literature of the 19th century has a lot of resonances with the ideas that he was exploring. Um, and they, I tend to think of them less as aspects of literary texts that can be illuminated by psychoanalytic theory and more as a sort of set of shared concerns. Um, And all throughout the 19th century, you see the idea of the structure of the family as a a topic that could be studied and explored being developed in all all types of contexts. So the anthropological literature of the 19th century is really originates in a lot of ways out of trying to study the origins of the family. And I think that this is also something that's at the heart of a lot of the literature of the period as well. The insights that psychoanalytic theory was were, was uncovering were insights that fell within the the ages of art and literature and philosophy, in the, in, especially in the preceding 200 years. But you see a, a whole host of authors who share a set of concerns with Freud and with psychoanalytic thought in, in general. Hardy certainly is somebody who, who thought a lot about the centrality of sexual experience to social life. Bronte, uh, Emily Bronte, for example, in Wuthering Heights is somebody who you can see really thinking deeply about the structure of the family in ways that were very closely connected to the way that Freud would come up with the idea of the Oedipus complex. In the next episode, we'll look at how the horrors of the First World War impacted scientists, writers and artists of the time. The series is funded by the Wellcome Trust. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.